This interview is with Simon Costin about the Hastings Jack in the Green event, recorded by the Making Mischief Volunteer Group at Compton Verney. Okay, would you mind just introducing yourself for the recording, please? Yes, so I'm Simon Costin and I'm the director of the Museum of British Folklore. Fantastic. Um, And so we've seen your costumes up in the exhibition. Could you tell me a bit about your background with the custom itself? So, yes, the costume is from, it's something I wear at the Hastings Jack in the Green Festival. Um, I've been attending the event for 29 years um, and was first introduced to it by an ex-assistant of mine who um, knew I was very interested in folk traditions. And he had some friends in Hastings and said, oh, why don't we, you know, take part, maybe. So he asked whether we could take part. They said yes. I knew it was about green. So my first outfit was actually a, a dyed white denim jacket and trousers that I bought in a second-hand shop and tie-dyed and applied bells to it and um, had a top hat and just just went along for the first time and it was great. I think the thing that astonished me was the energy of the event and the sense of community because it was the Jack and the Green Hastings was re-established in 1983 by a man called Keith Leach and Keith um, had a strong interest in folk music and folklore and knew that the Jack and the Green used to take place in Hastings but with many of these traditions they were suppressed which is partly what our exhibition is about and the suppression was due to the fact that they were drunk and rowdy boisterous noisy events you know, that weren't uh, that was slightly uncontrollable and so that in itself interested me and um, yeah so I went along back whenever that was 29 years ago and over the years my costumes um, because I had a background in theatre design became more and more elaborate and after I think it was the third year of going the organisers of the event who were called the bogies the bogies are the people who surround the jack and support it throughout the day. I should point out for people who don't know what the jack is, the jack is an ambulant hedge really. It's um, It started off in the 18, early, well, there's uh, the earliest reports are sort of mid-1700s and then it was um, a tradition that happened on May Day as a form of legalised begging. So uh, chimney sweeps who were out of work in the summer months because chimneys were no longer being swept and milkmaids would parade through the streets playing music and begging basically and boys being boys my garland's bigger than your garland um, and the garlands got bigger and bigger and they went from being a garland as to covering the entire figure and that's uh, he was it was nicknamed the jack I'm still curious to know why the word the name jack reoccurs so often around the time because you've got jack and jill jack the ripper jack jack frost jack jack was a word applied to so many different folkloric characters but anyway that's another conversation (laughs) um 
So I've lost the plot now. <laughs> well, yes, so my costume. So my costume. Yes. So after the third year of going along to the festival, the organisers um, there used to be Kaylee on the end of the pier, which sadly burnt down in Hastings. And the organisers came over to us one evening and said, uh, "You and your your mates, um, these fancy costumes. Um, you know, we've nicknamed you the Gay Bogies on Acid um, because our costumes were so elaborate." And we said, that's, that's great. He said, do you want to come and join, come you know, meet everyone? And that um, was the beginning of a very, very close-knit friendship with all of them. And, uh, yeah, it's just gone from strength to strength, and the costumes have become more and more elaborate um, until the one that you can see in the exhibition. What's your, what was your um, inspiration for the costume in the expedition? The, prior to that, the one that's on exhibit here, I've made them myself, and I'm not a costume maker. I could design a costume, but I can't make it, so they were pretty crude, to say the least. Um, usually hand-sewn or glued together or whatever, as indeed a lot of the costumes are. Um, but I, th I felt after however many years, I wanted something that was going to stay in one piece and survive the day and not require a lot of repair for the following year. And so I worked with a, a costume designer, a fashion designer called Christopher Kelly, Chris Kelly, and um, we talked a lot about the origins of the festival. So the cut of the coat, which is like a frock coat, refers to the first period and when those reports, 1720s, 1730s. So the cut of it is based on a frock coat from that period. Um, and it was my idea to, to kind of use tapestry pieces that we bought on eBay and cut up. And because I wear horns, there's a stag on the back of the costume as part that we just happened, Chris found. And so it kind of developed from that. It was a period silhouette, but completely fantastical in its construction. Um, yeah. How many years have, have you been wearing that costume? For? I think about six now. Okay. I think it's about six years old. Chris could tell me. I should know, but I can't. It's all a blur of green. What's sort of generally the role of costume in the Jack of the Green? Um, it's similar. The wearing of costumes at seasonal customs and events is more or less you can apply it to all of all of them really it's a moment when ordinary people step outside their usual day-to-day -day life and become something else so in jack and with the jack in the green the costumes that are worn bear no relevance at all to the original festival which was predominantly chimney sweeps wearing their day-to-day -day clothes and milkmaids so it's a very good example of how a seasonal custom has mutated and evolved and it developed. So obviously they've taken green as the predominant colour that's worn, but lots of other groups wear different things. Um, but the costume is a means to become something else. So the minute people wear a mask or put a costume on, you're becoming other. Mm. And the otherness is something that bonds everyone together, in, certainly in Jack in the Green. So. You're part of a community, you're part of an event, um, you're identifiable because you look like nothing on earth. Um, so yeah. yeah. Do most people dress up for? You have to, yes. 
Yes, you wouldn't be able to join the procession unless if you were just wearing your ordinary clothes. So it's pretty boring. No, I think if you you take if you participate in those things, you have to embrace what the event is about. Sadly, we've had a number of people that have been asked to leave the procession because they just assume in their arrogance that they can join in, not putting any effort in whatsoever. Um, and it's not about that. It's not to be exclusionary, but it's to say, look, it's a very specific thing, celebrating a specific time of year, celebrating something. Don't just turn up thinking you can you know, join up. Be Have some respect for the event and the organisers. Contact them, and if you want to join in, they say yes, but you have to dress up. Yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes meaningless. No. So over your years of involvement in the custom, how have you seen it change? Well, certainly the numbers who come to watch. I think twenty-nine years ago we had about between two and three thousand people, and this year I think it's twenty-eight thousand people. So it's an enormous increase over the years. But also the age, the demographic has shifted. I think in the last six, seven years, it's got a lot younger. And um, I think that's due to a whole combination of strands that are running through culture at the moment from nature writers like Ian McFarlane, or no, Robert McFarlane, rather, and all those, but the Dark Mountain Project, all that, that nature writing. Um, I think there's a lack of spirituality for young people and they see folk customs as a means of connecting with something that might feel ancient or have some kind of, kind of uh, resonance in that way. But also it's, it's unlike a lot of organised religions, it's totally unjudgmental, it's very inclusive, um, there's no finger wagging. It's very drunken, um, so and it's fun and it's celebratory and it's about being alive and you know the ushering in the beginning of summer and yeah. So the demographic certainly changed in the last. That's one of the major things I've noticed sh a shift. And what what um, impacts do you think that your involvement with Jack of the Green has had on on your life? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, well, because I was involved and had an interest anyway in folklore before that, um, I think, hmm, let me think about that. I think becoming involved in something, because I've been to lots of different events, but coming, becoming involved in something that I've kept, attend, I've kept attending over the, over the years and grown up with a lot of, all the, of those people who have also attended it for so long. Um, I don't know, it's, that's a really hard question. I don't know how to answer that actually in a clear, precise way. I think it's affected my life in all sorts, on all sorts of different levels. Um, increased involvement with the custom has shown me there are similar connections between all of these events. All of the events have community at their heart, um, celebration at their heart, um, sort of an expression of identity at their heart. So all of those things have been welded into my, you know, being by attending Jack in the Green. I suppose that's a roundabout way of answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. 
how do you see the custom changing in the future if you do think it will change it's a tricky one um we've all noticed over the last four or five years an increase of people joining who have actually either very little interest or no knowledge of the origins of the tradition. So you're, you know, this year we had uh, an anteater, somebody dressed up as an anteater. Um, you had uh, a Whittlesea straw bear kind of copy that came along. So there's people just assuming they can wear any old nonsense, really. Not that the straw bear is, but it's at the wrong time of year. The straw bear happens at a specific time of year for a specific reason. It's got nothing to do with Jack in the Green. But there's this kind of dilution happening at the moment. There's lots of people just pitching up in, you know, anything, really. There was a, a, um, a whole team of mushrooms this year. People dressed as mushrooms. Not quite sure. I suppose you could grow... Anyway, I'm picking at straw, trying to work out why, what their thinking was as to why they decided to come as mushrooms. Um, and the anteater. And there was a, a Loch Ness monster last year. So, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure where this is going. So how, as to how it could evolve in the future, it will either retain its identity or become very diluted and just a procession, a kind of carnival. Which would be a shame, I think, if it loses its it loses touch with its origins, mm. because that's the whole point. It's you know, you're ushering the beginning of summer. It's a celebration of that. I think if things start to become just a mishmash of of oh yeah, I can just it's a carnival. I can just wear any old nonsense. It's a shame because it will lose its identity and not mean anything anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think that that is a result of this increase in attendance? Or is it the demographic? Is it a combination? It's hard. I think it's, it's, it's certainly to do with the increase of interest. But it's also, there's a certain arrogance attached to it that you can just imagine, oh, it's, this is great. It's, you know, I can pick, come along to this in any old... So it, there's a kind of arrogance and disrespect for the event and the people who've organised it, really. Um, and I'm not sure what's generating that, what's pushing that forward, because it's certainly changed in the last five years or so. But where it's coming from is probably ignorance, to be honest. It's like, oh, this is just a street party. I'm not actually going to do any research as to why this happens and what it means. Um, which is a shame, because surely that's what you're there for, to tap into that thing yeah. that it's about. Otherwise, you could come as Batman, or whatever. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Do you see sort of like the protection of the costumes as they have sort of evolved through your practice, protecting those kind of costumes is integral to protecting the custom itself then? To a degree, yes. I mean, it's we've already been offered some of the Jack and the Green costumes by some of the elder, older people who've been involved in it since the eighties, um, because they don't want their costumes to be lost or thrown away by their children who don't quite know what they are or something in the future. Though it'd be highly unlikely they wouldn't know what their parents, because it dominates their lives. Um, but yeah, I think protecting the costumes protects the legacy to a degree. 
Have you um, have you enjoyed the process of designing and making your costumes for over the years? Oh yeah, always. I love making things. So yeah, any excuse to get a hot glue gun out. <laughs> Do you have a favourite costume that you've created for Jack of the Green? Over the years? I think the f- current one. I absolutely love that costume. Yeah. I think it's like, it's the culmination of lots of different ideas that fed into it, and so I think the current one is is definitely my favourite. Yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, so it's mostly glued. Did you? How did you kind of find the materials? Was it just all kind of up Chris to Kelly? Really, Was he's you know because it's all exquisitely made and mm. it's all been properly made. Um, he did most of the research and scouring of costumes, being all eBay and things. And I'd find tapestries on eBay and send them to Chris. And so yeah, but he did all the sourcing for the most part. The shoes are a new addition. I forgot that. Um, a friend of mine called Sandy Powell's a costume designer. And they are actually shoes from the the new Disney production of Snow White, um, which weren't used. And she said, "Oh, these look like your cup of tea," and uh, and they're very comfy. Actually, funny enough, those shoes. <laughs> Could you just, for the sake of the audio, give us a a really kind of complete description of the costume so that we can kind of okay. So see it if if you were to imagine a seventeen twenties frock coat. Um, which is open at the front, they were generally open at the front. There is beneath that a waistcoat that is heavily embroidered with flowers and leaves. Um, There's a kind of cravat that goes around a white linen shirt that's underneath it with a high collar. The headdress is a pair of ram's horns. It used to be real, but gave me a headache every time I wore them, so those are actually plastic. I hate to say, <coughs> don't tell anyone. Um, and then there are uh, breeches that finish just below the knee with little buttons, um, and then green tights and shoes. And the colour's predominantly green. And the headdress is always decorated with fresh bay each year. Why bay? Just because it's in abundance in, in and it lasts the day. It's very uh, robust plant and the jack is also covered in bay. So it's a kind of nod to the jack. Okay, great. Yeah. So on the day itself, what's your sort of process of getting ready? What are you thinking when you're putting on your costume? Hmm, that's a, um, to get my act together to get there on time, <laughs> usually, because I'm always late. Uh, I don't know. I think it evokes, you think of all the previous events that you've, you've been to and um, I'm usually concerned about the weather <laughs> it's a kind of very British thing to worry about the weather um, but it does affect the, the day considerably if it's pouring down it's miserable on all your green face makeup oh and I should paint, point out that everyone paints their face green uh, but if it's raining it gets in your eyes and stings and, and you have to keep going to a pub to retouch so, but I think getting ready, it's, yeah, it's often thinking about the previous, the previous events and, and looking forward to seeing everyone, generally speaking, you know, and hoping that the people who have been there in previous years are still around. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes they're not. So, yeah. Is there the, the customer itself that any time you see a lot of those people, is it just out of Jack of the Green or do you? I, it's usually when I see them, yeah, because I live in Cornwall now, so okay. I'm many, many miles away. Um, but I've got obviously friends in, in Hastings, but I don't end up getting there very often. I think you pack so much into the weekend 
the Jack in the Green weekend. That's enough for a year. <laughs> sort of. Don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> My question was about the changes over the 29 years, and you said that your costume had developed or got more sort of over the top or with what sort of inspired those changes were they trend based were they like historical did you go sort of maybe explore the changes it, the changes were mostly due to the construction of the costume and them falling apart to be honest they weren't really to do with um flares are in this season um they were it was really to do with the fact it had its day and it was looking a bit sad and tatty so i wanted to revamp it and rather than adapt the existing costume and just make a new one because it's more exciting to be wearing something new. You previously wore a hat. Yes. Um, can you tell us the story behind the hat? So when I first set up the museum project, Museum British Folklore project, I bought um, a little Castleton Tourer 1976 caravan very small on eBay for £260 and gutted it and filled it with display cases and cabinets and the exterior was painted like a fairground, it was very colourful and I spent six months touring the UK in my little car, I can't drive so my brother was driving, pulling it and um, it was very clear that I needed a look for my tour if I'm going on the road and so I worked with my assistant at the time, um, Jenna, and she designed a series of costumes. I was also, my day job as a set designer, I was working with a fashion designer called Gareth Pugh. And Gareth designed me two coats that I wore. And a very dear friend of mine is Stephen Jones, the milliner. And Stephen constructed this museum in a hat. It's a very tall stovepipe hat made in leather and it's kind of barge painting and barge painting is a kind of naive um, style of folk art that often associated with barges, hence the name. And um, you get all sorts of objects painted with barge painting and probably roses and castles, but anyway. So the hat grew out of the idea of having this mobile museum on my head. And within the cutout at the front of the hat, you've got, um, there's about a dozen objects all related to the project. So there was an egg for conception. There was um, a silver sixpence for trying to raise funds. Um, there was a hair as a representation of folklore and strength and renewal. Um, there was a little miniature bird, um, bird cage, but with the door open, which represented the idea has now flown into the, into the world. So each object within the hat had meaning. Um, and the only reason I stopped wearing it to Jack in the Green was because it was in danger of getting damaged. Jack in the Green's very rowdy, very drunken. It's, it's, yeah. It's not stately on any level. It starts off stately and then it gets raucous as the day goes on. And I was just really worried that it was going to get damaged. And um, it's so special and so precious to me. 
and often, you know, if you're going into a portaloo, you have to take it off, and then you, where do you put it in a portaloo? Anyway, I won't go into details about portaloos, but they're not the most ideal places to put something special down on the floor. I understand. And then Julia's <laughs> other question, which was, how, what does it make you feel when you put on the costume? Um, I think if the minute you put any form of costume on, you, you kind of become more confident, weirdly. Um, because you're not yourself anymore and especially if you've got green face paint on and you're wearing something quite mad people smile at you in the way that they don't unless you're slightly unhinged or something um, so but you get a lot of positive reaction people look at you and go oh my god that, you look fantastic or you look fabulous and it does make you far more playful as well I do things that I'd never do in a million years on a day-to-day, -day, like asking policemen to carry you, that sort of thing. Um, I've got pictures with four policemen and I'm lying down and just, yeah, I think if the minute you put costumes on, and especially in an event like that, which is all about um, joy and celebration, um, you do tend to do things that you wouldn't normally do when you're dressed in your civvies. <laughs> You mentioned how you've always been around the folk scene. Yes. In what way was the first question? Yeah. And what really drew you and why are you still interested in Jack and the Green? Yeah. And why is it specifically green, bearing in mind a lot of symbolism in lots of different festivals? Different right. colours are used in different festivals. Yes. Uh, okay, so the first part of uh, you have might have to remind me of that because there's several what started the ball rolling? so what started okay so when i was seven um my mother was evacuated the war to devon and cornwall she was just on the board there and so a lot of our childhood holidays were in devon or cornwall and i was about seven years old and on may day they took me to padstow in cornwall and there's some film footage, I don't know if there's anyone watching, in the gallery, the immersive room of the Padstow May Day celebrations, which is very raucous and celebratory. And there's this enormous beast, well, there's actually two of them, the Oss, which is kind of black uh, figure with an enormous conical costume and a hat. And if you're that big, and you encounter something that big, it leaves a marked impression. And this thing careers around the round, uh, the, the, you know, the, through the streets of Padstow. And again, it's very drunken and rowdy. And I was just absolutely blown away by this. What the hell was this thing that I just witnessed as a child? And it stayed with me for years and years and years. And then my parents bought me the book. It was a Reader's Digest book on the folklore myths legends of Britain, I think it's called. Um, which became my Bible, basically. So every time we were going on holiday or going away somewhere, I'd flick through and find out where we were going. Oh, there's a haunted pub. Or it's the long, long man of Wilmington. Or there's something, there was always something. Because the, the way the book is organised, it's region by region. And so it's very, very easy to quickly look up uh, wherever you might be in Shropshire or Northumberland or wherever it was. Um, and that kind of engendered the interest in folklore. 
And also, I was very frustrated that there, there's nowhere in Britain that you can actually go. There's no museum, there's no central resource, or there's nothing, absolutely nothing. There's little pockets of bits and pieces in museums. The, the Pitt Rivers has a great collection of charms and talismans and things, but there isn't anywhere in the UK. And that was always at the back of my mind. And um, yes, fast forward... 20 odd years ago, I made the decision to try and establish Britain's first museum of folklore. And now, what was the other part of that question? So, a lot of festivals have certain colours around them. Yes. What's the symbolism with the green? The coming of summer. It's that, that simple, really. It's, so it's green is the most potent colour to symbolise. I mean, it could have been yellow, but green is more prevalent. Yeah. Of all the plants, it's green. So... Yeah, it's that really, green and summer. Thank you. Mm. Hi. Um, yeah, so on the Jack of the Green signage, it was mentioning about um, queerness and different sort of festivals. Yeah. And on one hand, I can see how theatricality and the campness and the idea of, sort of queer in the hegemony would lend itself to folklore, but I can also imagine that in something very traditional and English traditional with all sort of politics happening at the moment, there could also be a backlash to that or a certain groups more resistant to allowing, mm-hmm. to leaning into that a bit more. So I was wondering yeah. if you had any experience with any issues that have come around that or how, how inclusive that's been as a space. The thing with folk events or seasonal customs at events is that they operate outside the norm anyway. Mm-hmm. These things aren't state sanctioned. They're not set up by the local council for the local, you know, they're, they're generated by people and operated and run by the folk. So from that point of view, they're already inclusive because they're, the outsiderness of them sets them apart. So personally, I've never experienced any form of homophobia, personally, in any of the events. No one gives a monkey, they don't care. It's like Minehead, it's, it's, it was set up by a group of lesbians who put, got, came together and re-establish the, the tradition is it sort of people don't care really what you are it's, it's your passion for the event and your commitment to it I think um, but personally I've never experienced anything no one they're like oh yeah whatever um, mm. so yeah which is, is really unusual on, on in some levels but yeah I it's I think it's because they operate outside, it's their outsiderness, their intrinsic outsiderness makes them more inclusive, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering as well if you ever see a reflection on people's, um, the communities around you and how they respond, for example, like when the satanic panic call thing was going on, mm. was uh, people who were around the festival not taking part in it, was there any sort of wariness to it? There may well have been, but... Because I'm not in that world, I don't, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know really. I'm not sure. I could, I, it's funny you should mention Static Panic, which is, it, it, for those people who don't know, um, the Satanic Panic came out, uh, came about, God, 20 odd years ago or more now, mm-hmm. when a group of children were allegedly um, involved, told stories of being. Um, involved in satanic rituals and 
it was found to be completely groundless and I mean, it's appalling that what happened social workers took the children away um, you know Orkney and where's the other place was it Rochester I've got a feeling but the satanic panic Dungeons and Dragons or something wasn't it that they were playing yeah it was yeah. it was just but it was that in itself is a folkloric kind of response um, it's a tricky one to talk about but anyway yeah, we're getting off the costume point now. <laughs> Static panic. Um, but no, I think the way that people who aren't involved in folk customs view folk customs when they see it is generally char they're just charmed by it, unless it gets really out of hand, which doesn't happen very often. But usually it's kind of like, oh, it's very... Because people are very nostalgic about these things even though they've been suppressed for years and years and years. I think there's still that vein of dissent that runs through UK culture that's very healthy um, and is constantly being suppressed. And, you know, as we all know, we've lived under the Conservatives for how long now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I said I wouldn't mention politics, but yeah, don't, don't get me on that one. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, you talked about the freedom and the lack of rules, etc. But what happens to the mushrooms and the anteaters? Are they banned? Do you have some no. sort of rules or do they join in? No, they totally join in. Absolutely join in. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just an example of the, 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 the custom kind of slightly losing its focus, if you like. Um, but yeah, no, 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 everyone's allowed to join it. The only people that are allowed, to, uh, that, sorry, are, are asked to leave the procession are people who just usually a bit drunk and aren't dressed up and just think they can start singing or something. Um, you know, have some respect for the, the event. So they're the, usually the only people who are asked to. So could you just go through what actually the procession involves, where it goes from, where it goes to, what happens along yeah. the way, and if there's music? Okay, so the Jack in the Green Festival, um, everyone gathers at the fishermen's huts, which are down on, on the harbour, and they're these beautiful black conical, long, tall huts for drying up the nets. They're very unusual looking and a good survival of that period of industry. Um, and there's the fishermen's museum, and the Jack is hiding inside the fishermen's museum with the bogies, who are all getting drunk basically um, and if you are new to the custom and known to the group you get pulled inside and partially disrobed and your buttocks are greened with green paint <laughs> as a sign that you have been accepted into the inner sanctum of bogedom I have had to endure that and it was fabulous um, but it's, you know, probably not going to go down too well with other people, but it does, that's what happens. So various people get poured into the fish and huts and greened, and then unceremoniously thrown out again. Um, everyone starts to gather, so all the different, different the procession is made up of different groups. <coughs> you've got um, the, the bogies themselves who lead the jack, then you've got uh, the lovely ladies who are this group who are lovely. And um, I mean, all these things have happened very organically. This isn't some kind of like a set rule book of where well, you've got to have these and then you've got to have those. It's, it's just happened since the event started. 
And now you've got the, the gay bogies who are there. Um, and there's all these, there's the beer fairies who are a group of, of uh, women who keep the the team liquored with beer in these huge um, ram's horns and so, um, as I say, there's a lot of alcohol involved, but name one folk festival that doesn't involve a lot of alcohol. <laughs> and so everyone gathers by 10 o'clock. There's normally a town crier who comes and welcomes everyone to the event. And he has a staff which he hammers onto the wall of the fishermen's huts and releases the jack and the bogies. The Hannah's Cat Morris team then perform a very beautiful everyone goes very very quiet there's this very very beautiful dance that's performed around the jack and they release may blossom i'm usually in tears by that point and um and then the procession starts off and uh, just literally wends its way through the old town stops for more libations at the jenny lind and then it carries on up onto the west hill in the past it used to finish up in the castle, but it's outgrown the castle now, which is a shame because I really liked it back then. It felt contained and special and otherworldly. Now it's on the, the hillside and everyone joins in, which is also great, but it's different. And then ritually at th around three o'clock, the drumming starts. The jack is then led onto the stage where the Morris dance have been performing all afternoon. And the jack is ritually slain tipped on its side and stripped of leaves and thrown to the baying crowd <laughs> and you have to catch some of the leaves to keep for good luck and bring and burn on the eve of May Day the following year. So it's very, there's a definite ritual element to the Jack in the Green. And so there's just one Jack and everybody there's else in jack. costume are the bogies. Yeah. And the one Jack um, did they have a special costume? And was your costume the Jack's costume, or just simply your costume as a bogey? No, the Jack's the Jack. He's he's in it is in is un, ungendered. We always keep calling it Jack, but women carry the Jack as well. It's completely it's a hedge, really. It's a big, tall, conical <laughs> thing, creature covered in leaves with a crown of flowers. Um, but no, the Jack's the Jack. That's very very separate. His attendants, its attendants, are the. Mm -hmm bogies and then all, everyone else is whatever they are whichever ever group and there's the, lots of people and the jack's costume is literally leaves leaves and who makes that uh, oh there's a whole team there's the jack and the green committee so there's a whole team and he gets constructed in a shed off site somewhere and dressed the day before and then yeah put in put in place in the in the fisherman's museum it's heavy really heavy they said to him, oh, do you want to carry it one year? And I said, oh, well, that would be good. <laughs> no. So. so that leads to another question. Who is chosen to be the Jack and how are you chosen to be the Jack? Um, there is a Jack in the Green committee. So there's set up of people who initiated the festival, like Keith, initially, back in 1983. And yeah, it's all locals, though, because it, it makes sense, because they have to have meetings together and and they discuss things with the council too, the road closures and all the nitty gritty and marshalling and first aid and all that stuff that you have to have. Um, but they're just yeah, people who volunteer, basically. It's all volunteers. Um, so people volunteer their time. Uh, then you've got things like the printing of the catalogue and laying that out. They make t-shirts to try and raise money to get the event going. 
But the sad thing is the council this year announced that after next year they're cutting all the funding to the event. So 40 years is the 40th anniversary this year. So there will be one more next year and then we don't know what we're going to do. So, um, which is mad because it brings in a lot of revenue to all the local B&Bs are full, the pubs are full, the, you know, the restaurants are full. It may, on, during that weekend, all the local businesses make a huge amount of money. It's so short-sighted. It's, um, but we're undeterred, so we're going to, there's going to be crowdfunding campaigns set up and save the jack, all that sort of thing. But yeah, again, it's been suppressed. Um, and it does get drunken and rowdy, and people have been hurt. And, mm. You know, last two years ago, just before COVID, a lad climbed up the maypole and fell off, drunk as a bet, and um, broke his leg. And so, but they do that anyway. <laughs> People do that anyway, regardless of it being Jack in the Green. But it's tarred. The event gets tarnished by things like that. But yeah, it will survive. Oh, it will. It will, yeah. It will probably happen without the blessing of the council, which will cause a huge ruckus, but it will happen. <laughs> it's like a lot of things, like the Ottery and St Mary barrel burning. Um, that was interesting one year when I went, they were, because I don't know them all, they were saying, oh, the council have insisted on um, Harris fencing being put around the bonfire so that nobody gets hurt. And I said, You're, you are joking. And they said, no, don't tell them yet. So, of course, they lit the bonfire. All the Harris fencing, fencing mounted because it's in the, in the heat of a bonfire that big, it's impossible to get that close to it. So, that was a lesson well learnt by the council. Um, this has been fabulous, thank you so much. Okay. I'm concerned that Jess and Ken might be quite cross that we've got you and they have. Oh, so. okay, yes. What's time? Oh, gosh. Yeah, fine.